Okay, Rosh Chodesh Adar Beis, Parshas Pekudei 5782 uh, Purim is on our mind, and as we said, so is world events. Here we go. <clears throat> Let's start with an idea in the Parsha that is going to create a framework for our thinking about the under, the, 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 the backstory behind the Purim events. And also, you know, how we think about any time we find ourselves in a state of uncertainty, chaos, turmoil, danger, as the whole world is in today. So we have a very famous idea that you hear about all the time. We've spoken about it here. And that is the whole agenda that um, we are told to kind of uh, embrace. And that's called finding your tafkin. And we've done some talking about this here. It's an agenda, something you're supposed to do with your life. Well, the, we're gonna deepen that concept, even add more to it than we've done in the past. And, um, and by the way, this share is and please read Tanya's urgent announcement uh, on our notes. All right, so we've all heard about our life's agenda of finding our tafkid. And <clears throat> what we're going to do today is deepen that idea, expand that idea, and apply that idea. Where does this concept come from? Well, the root for tafkid, all right, the root for tafkid is found in a number of places in the Torah, the root word for the concept of tafkid, which is pei kuf dalid, pokade, pokad, is found in many places in the Torah. We're familiar with it, Sefer Bamidbar, also called Sefer Pekidim, where everybody is counted, and, and Chazal tell us counting means appointed to their particular task. Everybody has, is count, and as an individual, everybody has a, has a particular role to play. They're given a particular name. Well, we find it here again in Parshas Pekudei. In fact, the word Pekudei, right? Ela Pekudei Hamishkan. So there's so much on this, of course, we're going to just stick with as close to the shot definition as possible. Ela Pekudei, first of all, the word Pekudei has as its root Pekuf Dalit. And it's simply Rashi tells us Pekudei. Well, the Malbim tells us, Rashi tells us, we have also here the Archaims explain it. Pekude simple is an accounting. This is an accounting of all of the materials, particularly the metals, the, the silver, the bronze, all the various metals that were contributed. It's an accounting of how they were used. In other words, just so that everybody knows that everything they contributed was used in the Mishkan, it wasn't siphoned off even by Moshe for his own personal purposes, it's accounted for. So this is an accounting for every, all the effort you put in, it's, you, it is accounted for. We can show you exactly where your donation went, okay? The Malbin points out that the word pakude is in terms of accounting has a particular meaning. It's not, it's different than mispar. This is the number, all right? Or this is the, um, uh, this is the uh, minoy, sometimes minyan, could be is accounting. He says Pakude refers to not the individual, but the sum total. Ela Pakude, this is the sum total of everything that was donated and exactly where it was used. You want to find your half a shekel that you gave, you want to find your piece of jewelry that you gave, whatever metal it was made out of, we'll show you where it is in the Mishkan. It's in the hook, it's in the bar, it's in the plank, it's somewhere. Okay. 
So everybody knows, everybody can come and literally ask Moshe, okay, so where's the thing I donated? And Moshe shows them, this is what we used it for. So everybody sees that their efforts are eternally immortalized in the Mishkan. They did something and it's lasting, it's there. But the word Mishkan appears twice, and the word Mishkan sounds interesting because one of the other meanings of P, of Pekuf Dalid, other than accounting, is a lot of similarities to the word Mishkan. So Mishkan, we know, is related to Shechina, the place where Hashem's presence dwells. But the other definition for for Pekuf Dalid, okay, is Pekadon. Something that is on loan, something placed for safekeeping, like a security deposit. That's also called the picadon. When we learn about the laws of people asking other people to watch their, their belongings or somebody borrowing money and giving something as a security, like you rent an apartment. How do you know you're not gonna trash your apartment? So the owner says, give me a security deposit. Give me something I'm gonna hold on to that in case you know, you know, you ruin my property. I have something of yours. It's something you deposit for security with somebody else. So to, so that they can trust you. So pay kufdalid also means a security deposit, some sort of something of yours that you temporarily allow someone else to hold on to. All right. Uh, and that, and that, and that proves or that underscores their, your trust that they're going to give it back to you when you give back to them what they want. Then, um, Shemitah, in a way, everything we'll see is Hashem loans us the land and we give it back. Same thing like that. It's a loan. Everything we have is an alone from God, of course. But what about the word Mishkan? What's a, what's a Mishkan? What happens when you buy an apartment in Israel? That's cool. It's an apartment, but you put down a mashkanta. What's a mishkan? A mishkan actually means something you take in pledge. Something that you take in pledge from someone else. These words are very related. A taf, a pikadon, and a mishkan is something that you take as almost like the, 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 when somebody borrows something from you, the borrowed object, something they're holding on to that's yours is and now uh, with them, so to speak, on loan, that we refer to as a picadon. A mishkan is something you take back and you hold on to. It's very similar ideas. We're going to see that at Kodesh Baruch Hu, the way we relate to the, this whole story of the mishkan being built and the mishkan, of course, that exists in every single person is a relationship where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, is telling us that he's loaned us and he trusts us with the most valuable and essential commodity of all, which is the Chelek Elokai Mal inside of us, Hashem's Shechina, Mishkan Shechina, and he's loaned it to us. But if we don't use it well, we don't know what to do with it. So what happens is HaKadosh Baruch Hu will withdraw it a little bit until we figure out how to do it right, then Hashem will give it back to us. There's this constant back and forth. There's something that we always, that the, the, the nature of the relationship of the Jewish people with Hashem is there is built into this, the fabric of this relationship is the promise. 
the bris that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will loan us his presence so that we can channel it, so that we can provide for the world a model. We can be an Orlegayim. And if we don't do it right, Hashem draws back, so to speak, the clear and obvious uh, Shechina, but it's still, it's still, believe, as we're going to see, is, is with us in a less obvious way, takes back the Mishkan, takes back the Besamekdash. It's not obvious, not external anymore, but it remains with us internally until we live up to how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, what sort of relationship we're supposed to have with it. And, uh, and then it becomes, it becomes revealed again in the world. This whole concept, as you see here, look at the Rashi, the word Hamishkan is mentioned twice in allusion to the temple that was taken in pledge, Shemit Mashkain, it became a Mashkon, became a pledge. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took it as a security for Israel's repentance. When we do the right thing, we get it back. So our whole relation with the Kodesh Baruch Hu through history, we're waiting for the restoration of the Beis Hamikdash, is whether it really comes down to whether the Shechina that is among us will be clear and obvious, manifested in the physical world in a Beis Hamikdash, or will it just reside in our hearts and in our minds, always with us until that time that it will be revealed again. Because even if we don't have a Mishkan or Beis Hamikdash, the Shechina, as look look at the Shalak Kodesh is always among us, okay? The Shalah says, when Israel sinned and as a result, the temple was destroyed, the Shekhinah went into exile with the Jewish people, seeing that it was a mashkon, a pledge God had entrusted to them, okay? This is the mystical dimension of this Pasuk. These are the pledges of the Mishkan, the pledges of the Eidos. Hey, let's look, go back to the Pasuk. Ela Pekudei HaMishkan. This is the top, the Pikadon, the loan, which is, of course, going to lead us to the concept of Tafkin. This is the loan, okay, which is also a Mishkan. It's a Mashkanta. Hashem loans it. Hashem is going to take it back twice. Mishkan HaEdus. And that's the testimony that a Baruch Hu is always with us, that somewhere that loan is either manifest physically or it's living among us. It, it's always a testimony that it's through the Jewish people that ultimately the world will discover the great truth, which we're going to, about to get to uh, in a moment. Look at the Shalat. This is the basis of the rabbinic statement in Megillah 29 that Israel is beloved by God, since whenever the people of Israel are exiled, the Shekhinah is exiled with them. And he goes through all of them, when the, and he gives a Pasuk for every exile, a Pasuk that states in Egypt, Bavil. Persia until today that the Shechina, this Mashkon, the Shechina is among us, okay? And yet the Mishkan, the Beis Hamikdash, is sort of like that, is still, sort of speak, hovering in heaven, not yet, you know, re, re, um, not yet obvious and replaced in the physical way in this world. However, that doesn't mean that the loan of Kodesh Baruch has given us and the, the, the collateral, this pikadon, this mashkon ever leaves us. It's just a matter of if others can see it yet or if only we can see it. Now, let's go into the Purim story, all righty? Let's go into the Purim story and try to apply these ideas to what really happened. You know, before we look at the inner workings of the Purim story, Let's address the human predicament. Okay. 
everybody at certain point, probably between the ages of 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, or 21 or something, discovers, it becomes obvious to them that basically all the factors of their life that at that point when they're young define them have just sort of been thrown upon them, thrown upon us, and we've had absolutely no choice. We didn't pick our parents. Our parents, whatever our parents are doing, they're fighting this that's their business and we have to just absorb it endure it right whatever they're doing with each other how they raise us we're just like this we just you know we didn't choose this we didn't choose our siblings people have siblings with all sorts of issues strengths we didn't choose our siblings we didn't choose our bodies we didn't choose our temperament I'm shy, I'm timid, I wish I could be so confident and just make, you know, be that person in the crowd that makes jokes. I wish I'd be more aggressive. I wish I'd be less blunt. We didn't choose our temperament. We didn't choose our genetics. We didn't choose the generation we were born into. We didn't choose the country we're born into. What about that three or four or five-year-old in Ukraine right now? Why, they just, why couldn't I have been born in America, right? Suddenly it, appear, it dawns on us that uh, we just got dropped into the middle of a very big story that started before us, continuing after us, drama all around us. And here we are, and we didn't choose any of it. We get no choice. We get no opinion. It just is our situation. And we realize this, and we then people start thinking, what, you know, what would be better? What would be a better scenario for me? If only I would have had a different temperament. If only I wasn't so, so worried all the time and anxious. If only I had different siblings. You know how much of my life changed, had, you know, took the course it did because of the siblings I had. If only I had different parents. If only it was a different generation. We start looking around for a better scenario. And and if you ask anybody in the world, what would be a better, a better reality for you, okay? Um, that, that answer is gonna be very different for different people, not only because of the variables that are each person's reality, but something even more fundamental than that. In assessing all the variables, we ask ourselves, Okay, so who am I? Am I just the sum total of all the factors? So I'm somebody's sister and somebody's spouse and somebody's daughter, and this is the body, so that's who I am. I'm just the, basically the, the inevitable kind of like um, sum of all these factors that I didn't choose, that's who I am. And everybody says, no, there's got to be some integral me that's not just a function of a million factors that I had no capacity to choose. Who's the I? Who am I? Where do I locate my I? And everybody starts searching for the I that's unique to me. And, the old, and what we're really searching for is the I that I chose. Is there anything I get to choose? And we discover that there's only one thing we get to choose. And that is called our self-concept. How we perceive ourselves, how we think about ourselves. What sort of thing am I? It's the only thing we get to choose. 
is our self-concept. And in choosing our self-concept, we are really going through the process of deciding where to locate our I. Where is it located? Is it located? This is, of course, you know, not, not, not anybody, not most people who have some sort of spiritual philosophical strivings, but some people, and again, in answering the question, what would be the best thing for me? Some people in that attempt to locate their eye somewhere, they decide that what I can choose for myself, okay? And my identity is my physical. So I locate my eye basically in my body, how my body looks, how my body, my proportions of my body, the fitness of my body, the beauty of my body. And like, you know, of course that goes with the fashion of my body and the comfort of my body and the pleasure of my body. We locate the eye in the body. That's yeah. And that, that's Yavan, Greece. And we locate the eye in the body. And um, as a friend of ours, who's a producer in Hollywood said, you know, it's a very, very dangerous business. The least, they said, you know what the most worthless commodity in Hollywood is? A woman over 40, okay? So the point is for those that locate the eye in the body, we don't even have to, you know, it doesn't take much imagination to see how, devastating and painful that can be in a very short amount of time. And of course, if the eye is located in the body, because I'll talk about it when that body dies and goes into the ground and degenerates, there's a special type of suffering because the eye is in the body. And that's called chibura kever. We try very hard not to be that, and we're not. Anyone who learns Torah, even a little bit, does not do that. But then there's another place to locate the eye, which many people fall into. And that would be in my ego. Ego meaning my sense of my unique role and value in the world, my power, my influence, my fame. This is a Haman type of thing. My importance, my power, my fame. This is a Putin type of thing. My ego. That's my eye. You might forego all physical pleasures. Doesn't like Osama bin Laden lived in a cave, you know. It's not about my body. It's about my identity as all powerful. I'm compete. There's no God in the picture. There's nobody else in the picture. My eye is in my fame. But you know, what happens if you're outpowered? What happens if you look at the Haman story? You're outmaneuvered. There's, you're not powerful. Somebody else overpowers you. Someone else steals your fame. What about that? Tanya once mentioned this movie footnote classic. Somebody is going to launch their reputation in the world by releasing a paper, maybe one that will earn them a Nobel Prize on some breakthrough in physics. And the day before they release it, some random scientist in a lab in Sweden releases the same chidosh in a paper of their own. And who am I now? I'm just a footnote in someone else's. And also, this guy also wrote a paper. I'm just the footnote, right? Like, what about that? The pain and suffering when the eye in that place hits a brick wall or de degenerates, also terrible. Then there are people that locate their eye in their relationships. I'm um, the father, the brother, the daughter, the wife, whatever, I. 
but we can't control what other people do. We can't control other people's choices. And so it leaves us in a very, very difficult position if we locate our eye in how other people relate to us. Okay. Now, if we locate our eye in any of these places, of course, a better scenario would be dependent on where we locate our eye. What would be better for me? Well, if my eye is in my body, then youth and fitness and more, whatever. We, if we locate our eye and our ego, more power, more fame, you know, more immortality, etc. The question is that locating our eye in all of these places gets us, here's a big word today, stuck. We're very stuck. We're very stuck and very dependent on all sorts of factors falling into place for us that we that our bodies don't get damaged. We don't that somebody's eye is in their unique status of let's say being the world's greatest opera singer. What happens if something happens to your voice? You're done. So the eye that's reliant on so many factors outside of myself, right? That, that is what gives people a tremendous amount of anxiety, stress, worry, pain. If my eye is dependent on factors that I cannot control, I'm always in a terrible straight state of stress. And you know how many lectures are out there? Achieve the secret to achieving your life's goals. If life's goals are dependent on anything else but yourself, you're in trouble. Okay. Um, what is the correct Jewish place to locate your eye? The answer to that is nowhere. It's floating. Why is it floating? Because we all, as we said in the beginning, discover very early on that we're part of a very big story. And we have no idea at what point, at what place in that story we get dropped into. Surprise, Hashem says, welcome to my world. It's 2022, and this is who you are, and this is your situation. We don't get to determine any factors. So we have no idea where we're placed, when we're placed, and what we're gonna do in that placement until it becomes clear to us. Our eye knows only one thing Jewishly, that I am part of a much greater reality. I am part of the unfolding of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's big story. And I can play any role that happens to come my way, which I won't know till it happens to come my way. And at that point, I'll do my best to channel HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There is no such thing as we learned as finding your tafkid or this, you don't, nobody has a particular role they're designated to, to play. Nobody. We find ourselves in a very big drama and we have absolutely no idea what role we're gonna play until it becomes apparent what role we can play. Your tafkid will find you. Everybody here is on loan, picadon. These are all the accountings, right? Everybody's role is accounted for. Kodesh has a role for everybody. We just don't know what it's going to be till we find it, till it's there, okay? Um, this is the Mishkan. Hashem has, a, has, has is, is given a security deposit and Hashem is going to give it and take it and move it around 
okay, for us, we're going to, Kodesh Baruch Hu ultimately maneuvers and choreographs the whole story. And um, we don't have to have a sense of anxiety because it's, it's not our responsibility to ensure that we play a particular role. Now, the question is like this. Let's say somebody is stuck in a self-concept too much in the body, too much in my particular niche that I carved for myself in society, right? And what if, again, what if somebody supersedes me? What if somebody, you know, does what I'm, what my little niche is, what if somebody's better, you know? Um, what if it's not necessary anymore? So what if a person gets stuck, in, if their eye is located in one of these areas and, and, and it's stuck there and we want to release it. We don't want to be stuck uh, uh, sort of identifying ourselves and evaluating ourselves based on these type of things that we can't even control, right? The question is, can our self-concept change? And the answer is, of course it could change. And here's the next question. Can it change unexpectedly? Yes. Can it change against our will? Yes. Could a Kaddish Baruch Hu put us in a situation where he unsticks us and, um, and helps us find our true I? Yeah. So this is the real inner, inner, under, inner, inner, I guess, in dynamic of the Purim story. You know how it's Vinaha Pochu? You know the thing that in all the cases in the Purim story, something that gets turned around is it, the characters in the Purim story, their self-concept gets changed completely. The distinction between Purim and Pesach, this miracles of the, of the original early days of the Jewish people and the miracles of Purim, which Chazal say are going to be the model for the Achras Hayamim miracles, not the Pesach miracles. In Pesach HaKadosh Baruch Hu broke into nature and did big magic tricks and split the sea and said, okay, so do you all realize you're in my world? Hashem showed it to us. But the journey through history is a whole transition. We always talk about transitioning. Of course, we're supposed to transition to a whole much more internal understanding that we're in Hashem's world. The way that Akadosh Baruch Hu shows it to us through the Torah miracles is Hashem says, you're going to have a self-concept of who you are. And you're going to do your hardest to, to express it, to actualize it. And then you're going to see that whatever it was that you thought you were, that wasn't who you were. You were someone else. <laughs> I'm going to show it to you. Your self-concept is going to change, either willingly or unwillingly. And in the end, you're going to know you're all part of my world. Let's, let's interview Haman. Okay, let's call Haman up on the stage here. Okay. Let's ask Haman a couple of questions. All right, Haman. Haman, tell us about yourself. Who are you? Who's your I? What's your self-concept, Haman? So Haman's going to say, that's a really good question. Because I used to think that I was the great enemy of the Jews. I was, the, I had a lot of power. And I did a lot of things in my own self-interest and also in my hatred for the Jews. So I was the one who was the greatest opposition opponent to the Jewish people. That was my self-concept. But honestly, 
now that I'm looking back, let me tell you who I was. I put Esther on the throne. That was my idea, okay? Um, unfortunately for me, she's Shaul's great-granddaughter, and that's pretty sad because I'm Agog's great-grandson, okay? So Shaul didn't finish the job, and I put Esther on the throne. And then I made myself very rich. Haman didn't get rich by accident. He worked really hard to get rich. And it all was given to Mordechai. I enriched Mordechai. And I actually, by terrorizing the Jews out of my hatred, I actually got them to reaccept the Torah. And you could even say that I was more effective than Moshe Rabbeinu in having the Jews reaccept their connection to Hashem. And then I built the gallows that I could hang on. And then I sent the Jews essentially back there to Shoal to build the base of Migdash. So I guess I was the Jewish people's best friend. So my self-concept has radically shifted. Now that experience of a person's self-concept being changed on them to their horror, to their shock, to their astonishment and regret, and it's like a nightmare, the ultimate nightmare for Haman, for Hitler, the ultimate nightmare. That is called, as you know, Nikama. Nikama is not petty. Oh yeah, you did that to me, I'll do this to you. Nikama is the greatest act of chesed and rachamim that a Kodesh Baruch Hu can do for a person. The name, the word nikama is located between two names of Hashem that are both rachamim, kel, nikamos, Hashem. Kel is not short for Elohim. It's one of the 13 midas of rachamim. Hashem, Hashem, kel, rachum, bachanan. And Yudke Vavke is the ultimate, the greatest chesed that a Kodesh Baruch Hu do. Remember what we learned about chesed? All inclusivity everything's part of a Kaddish Baruch story, is showing us, surprise, you were part of my story. You thought you were someone, but I took all of your efforts and I used them for my own purposes. Welcome to my world. So your self-concept was switched on you. That's called nikama, but isn't nikama an interesting word? It's very close to the word nikama. So the Gemara says that even Rishayim, their tears, when they see this, it cools off their Gehenna, meaning Gehenna, meaning their remorse, regret, horror, shock, and ultimately self-loathing. How could I have been so dumb? I, took, I used all my efforts in this fantasy, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu just switched it all and said, surprise, you're in my story. Thanks for everything. Okay. Um, what about having the opportunity to consciously and willingly change your self-concept? Let's interview Esther. We don't really know much about Esther before the story, but we assume she was pretty, she was righteous. That's Chazal. Tell us she was righteous. But did she know herself? There was a, a pivotal moment in her story. And you know this, right? This is very familiar. Mordechai says to her, and exactly what we're talking about, you see, he says, listen, let's make it very clear. We're part of a very big story. Surprise, you're in the palace. It wasn't on the agenda at all. And you can imagine what a palace harem in the ancient Near East looked like, okay? You can see what they look like today. There were no women's rights, okay? Women were not treated well. They were property, they were abused. She, Esther was one of a lot of wives, but she was the chief wife, right? Okay. She didn't, that was not on the agenda. 
Mordechai says to her, listen, we're part of a whole big story. Don't, again, we don't get to choose anything. Here you are in the palace. You're, it's a, your life is a loan from God Hashem took and loaned you a life on his terms, on his timing, in his place and time. Hashem just gave you a life and you don't get to choose much except your self-concept. So Mordechai says to Esther, listen, you have to be clear. Hashem is going to save the Jews anyway. But you have two choices. You could say, listen, what my self-concept is located in my physical life. I intend to keep my body, my life safe. I want to stay alive. I am not going to get involved in this. Nobody even knows I'm Jewish. I want to stay alive. I want my body not to suffer. I don't want to be killed, which is a really good possibility. Okay. So I'm staying out of this. So Mordechai says, okay, no problem. Nobody's going to punish you for it. It's not, you don't have to do anything. He says, but if you're just going to stay silent, Hashem is going to save the Jews. But you know what? The only, the only thing that will happen, the only, the only outcome of this, you and your father's home, your whole legacy will be forgotten, lost. Nobody will care. You're irrelevant. It's okay. You could be irrelevant. You could come and go locate your eye in your body and nobody cares. You'll be forgotten. But you can also locate your ani in the bigger story, not in your ego, not in your relationships. She gave up a relationship to Mordechai's, not um, Mordechai's wife, whatever. You're locating your eye somewhere in Hashem's big story, wherever Hashem drops it in the moment. This is where I am. This is where Hashem decided I'm giving you your life. It's a loan, do what you want with it. But the best thing you should do with it is be the one through whom I run the world. Let my story unfold through you. Locate your eye wherever it happens to find itself, but, it all, but knowing that it's part of Hashem's story. And that's what Esther chooses, of course, all right? Um, you know, there's a, a, a little exercise I do with my students where they have to, after a lesson, they have to uh, do a little, uh, write a little two-line kind of synopsis. It starts like this. I used to think, <laughs> now I think, all right? When our self-concept changes, we do that exercise. I used to think I was identified by. Now I think I am identified by. Let's, let's, let's interview Vashti, okay? Hey Vashti, who are you? She says, I am a free thinker. I put my own interests in front of me. I don't have any value for the Shabbos. I insist that the Jewish people work on Shabbos. I don't respect that. I do not want to go to Achashverosh on his terms. I will not be devalued. I will not be a, a little plaything. I will assert myself. My I is my, my self-concept is my free, independent self-expression on my terms. So Kaddish Baruch says, good, I like that. So be, do that, be you, okay? That's gonna trigger a whole series of events, me, which is gonna open the throne for, for Esther. Be you, go be you, <laughs> because that's gonna work for me. It's gonna clean out the throne, okay? Everybody, everybody 
has one choice in this world, which is to decide on our self-concept. And we can only decide on our self-concept, all right, if we unstick ourselves from the, 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 the distressful locations that we sometimes lock our eye into. It's not in our physical situation. It's not in our relationships. We are not defined by our relationships because we can't control other people. We are not defined by the particular niche we think we're carving for ourselves because it could, we could lose it in a second. It doesn't define us. We are defined by, as we said, this floating eye. That's really what the Jewish people have been as a nation, a floating identity of a people that knows themselves as the vehicle through which HaKadosh Baruch Hu will teach the whole world, hey, you're all in my story. For the good, you're bad, you're good, it's all part of my story. Everything feeds into the one great truth of Molokol Ha'aretz Hashem. Let's even go a little deeper. If I do unstick myself, and by the way, let's just digress for a second. People do so many things today to unstick themselves from an I that they feel is limited, unhappy, worried, meaningless. We talked about transitioning. You think maybe I'll change my body and that will change my sense of I. Not everybody does that. People look for other forms of escape. Psychedelics, you heard about ayahuasca, things that free my small trapped identity and give it like a bigger scope of vision. You know, experience a limitless euphoric type of moment where I'm much bigger than myself and my particular circumstances. People meditate. There are so many things people are doing to unstick themselves from a very tiny identity. But the Torah approach is like this. No, you can't change the fact that you have one body, one set of parents, these are your siblings, this is your country, this is your generation, this is, you can't, you can't ever, it is, it's, it's, it's the recipe that Hashem made you. That's it. However, if your self-concept is large, that you in your situation are part of a very big story and you get to choose to have some of that story play out through you, then you suddenly discover, we suddenly discover, we are so much bigger than the particular actions that we take in order that we can play our true role as I, as the I that's part of Hashem's eye. In other words, what did Esther actually do? Let's be honest, she put on an outfit. Okay, she told everybody, okay, let's, let's talk about this. She said, everybody, we're Jews. You know, we're not shocked by a threat of annihilation. We, it's pretty common for us. So what does Esther say to do? Just do tshuva, just reconnect yourself to Hashem. It's actually not that complicated. Just reconnect your eye to Hashem because Hashem then can maneuver everything. Think about this. If you would ask the Jews before they did tshuva in the perm story, tell me about that party. They would say, that party? Do you understand that party? It was the worst thing that ever happened. It was at that party 
that Vashti got the king angry, whatever. And then Haman had this great advice to get rid of her. And because of that, somehow Ahasuerus just fell in love with Haman. And Haman happens to be an anti-Semite. And now he's in power because of that whole Vashti thing. We don't even know that party was just like a curse. Like every that party just, just created a disaster for us. Random events came together. And now there's Haman has power. It's all because of that crazy party in Vashti. If you ask the Jews after they did tshuva what happened at the party, they'll say, that party? That party's when Hashem got rid of Vashti through Haman, put Esther on the throne, so she was in place to save us. That party was HaKadosh Baruch preparing the refuah before the Makkah. It all depends on us. If we right, reconnect your eye to the big Ani, Anochi, that it's actually part of, then everything can change. All right? Now... Um, when, when, um, when we go deeper, we say, so what did Esther do? So she said, hold everyone, do truth. Then she fasted. She tried to locate her eye in Hashem's story. And she said, I'm going to make a plan. See what happens. So what did she do? She literally put on her dress, her gown. She walked a few steps to the king. She said, hey, I made a party. She called up the caterer and ordered some wine. She had the people set the table. And that's what she did. That's what she did. It wasn't that much action. And then they showed up at the party and she spoke. She said, you know, I'm all in danger and this guy is, is going to kill us all. And because of a few words, a few movements, a plan, not very complicated, probably a lot less complicated than our perm sutas, you know, when we choreograph it all. <laughs> all right. Whatever she did, she made a party. Right. And she said a few words and she stood up for her people and because of those minimal, literally minimal efforts, it probably took an hour. The entire Jewish people were saved. In other words, when we locate our eye in a Baruch Hu, we are so much bigger than ourselves. We are so much bigger than the circumstances, our body or our physical energy or our looks or our relationship. <laughs> Esther is not known for her relationship with Mordechai or her physical body, or even the fact that she's the queen. She's known for the fact that in the end, her identity was part of a big story and she did whatever she could do in the moment, at that time, in that place, whatever it was, to do her best. And that's it. And then what happened through her was so much bigger than her. So we all try to escape our little world and our little situation. And we try to do all sorts of manipulations and, 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 and it's going, and people are really, really, really like, it's, it's driving people today. Honestly, Uman, that's why Uman is so big back in the good days. When 100,000 people went there, what were they searching for? It was a, a, a place where you could, you know, experience uh, this like release, this like explosion of self-expression and connection to God. Everybody is looking for it in different ways, definitely through um, substances, definitely through mindfulness and meditation and retreats of all sorts, all sorts of things. But there's a total, these are all temporary fixes. The real freedom comes from knowing that in this loan that a Kaddish Baruch gave us, which is our life, Shem is always holding on to it. It's called the Shechina, the Mishkan, it's either here or it's in us. Okay, it's somewhere. But this, the Shechina represents the all-encompassing 
echer of HaKadosh Baruch that we are part of, just like Shochen. When we think about Shechin, we think the Shechin is in us. What it really means we are in, we are Shochen, we are dwelling in the greater reality of HaKadosh Baruch That's our Makom. We never leave our Makom. Wherever we go, we're still in that Makom. And our greatness is way bigger than our efforts. Now, this, just to tie this into a Kabbalistic idea and tie it into Purim, you know, we, we always learn about, these are the three first elements of the 10 spheres, Chachma, Bina, and Das. And in the Arhilchas Day Ashir, Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Zoom, we're going into these things in depth. But in a nutshell, Chachma always represents truths that come from beyond us that we become aware of. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the source of Chachma. In other words, Hashem created a whole world, nature, Teva, which we get to discover, learn about. It's outside of us and we find ourselves within it and we go ahead and try to, to learn as much as we can about it. That would be in the natural world, Torah, or Hashem's revelation, Hashem tells us truths, reveals things, and they come from outside of us and we become aware of it and we start to in, try to learn it. That's called Chachma is always that which comes from outside of ourselves. It's always the situation or the truths, the knowledge outside of us, okay? In our lives, when we open our eyes and realize that we're in a situation, that's like sort of like the Chachma. It's our situation. It's nothing we chose. It's all the externals. And we don't get any, this, has, this is not at all in our capacity to, to manipulate. This is what it is. It's a given. Bina, okay, is the concept of bobone. You take the factors that you find yourself within, and now you got to build something out of it. What are you going to build out of the factors of your life? Well, the only thing you can build, you can't build other people, and you can't, you can build yourself. Vayiven, this is the word used for the Isha. Everybody plays this role. We build ourselves. We the only thing we can do is using the factors that, that have been given to us. We pick and choose. We develop a self-concept of who we are in the big story or who we might, or that we are part, rather that we are part of the big story. And then we take whatever experiences have been given to us and we learn from them and we select and we pick and choose and we analyze and we decide what aspects of everything we've been exposed to is going to, we're going to embrace and we're going to value and they're gonna help us build their proper self-concept, which, which things do we wanna decline? They don't help us build our proper self-concept. They're not gonna be part of who we are. You know, sometimes you learn from people's successes sometimes you learn from people's from people's failures sometimes you learn from people's strengths sometimes we learn from people's weaknesses who we want to be so once we do that once we build a self-concept using the variables that Hashem has given us okay that's why everybody's unique we all are part of the big story but how we personally bring those timeless truths into the world how we channel those things are going to be so unique because of our unique circumstances so what about what happens then? You build a self-concept. The next element is called das. Das is interesting. Once you build your self-concept, then you, when we actualize it, like when Esther decided to do her best to save her people and she went and made a party, 
That's actualizing her self-concept. The thing about Das is it's much, much bigger than the Bina, than the combination of Chachma and Bina. It's much bigger than that because we have only a limited amount of what we can process from everything out there that there is to know. We only have a limited amount of what we can do physically, tangibly in our lives, what we can technically build, okay? The only thing that's unlimited is our self-concept. And that is our das, our das. And our das is much bigger than the particular actions we take. And it lets great powers, great forces flow through us. We talk, when we talk about and even in the, in the spheres, if you know about this, das, just throwing it out there for those who are familiar with it, comes back to what's called keser, which is the ratzon of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. In the end, the das that flows through us reflects the ratzon of Hashem, meaning Hashem has a great plan. We only get X amount of chachma to internalize and process and actualize because we're limited people. But in our attempts to define ourselves correctly, what flows through us is the Ratzon Hashem. That's called Das. Das is when we have a really strong self-concept. It's located, you know, it's anchored and located in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Echad or Anochi. It makes us potentially very big. And then the Das that flows through us the awareness when the when the in the Purim story when the world and the Jewish people said had that aha moment that's called das that was a big aha moment oh my goodness all of these factors oops all of these factors big son and even even big son and Seresh remember big son and Seresh even their little plot the poison the king played into the big story. When everybody gets that aha moment, that's called das. That aha moment is so big. And it came through a few small actions. Never underestimate the, the effect, the power that our small deeds, that our, self, our moments of self-sacrifice, our moments of really locking into our proper self-concept, never underestimate the enormous impact That's like it could make. Purim. Well, think about it. Purim means a lot. Hello, that's what we're talking about. We don't get to choose the lot. We don't get to choose it. That's exactly right. We don't get to choose all the factors. They just, surprise, this is your lot. But what we get to do is using it. Do something that we can do. In our physical, you know, and everybody's limited, but never underestimate the impact, the aha, the das that can come to the world through making your best effort in the situation that you're in. And the Purim story is a story of Napohu. Everybody's self-concept goes through a little bit of a change, a big or small change. It's a moment of truth. Who are you? We don't want that to answer that question in a state like Haman of shock and horror. We wanna choose willingly who we are. So like Purim, right? Who are you? Who are you really? The ultimate question is, what is, 
What is your I? What is your I? And when we discover our I, which is what everybody's searching for, look how we celebrate Purim. There's so much joy. Like This is what we're waiting for. This is the joy to know who you are and know that who the person you are is not vulnerable to all these other factors that could change around you. That no. That's very nice. That we're always hiding it, but there's an eye, and if, if we have a floating eye, an eye that's available for whatever circumstances our lot becomes, we don't know. We don't know from here from today to tomorrow. Yeah, I like that Purim. So here it is. It's a it's comforting. Nakamas nakama, right? It's comforting. Take it easy. Your eye, Hashem will place your, your eye where it's meant to be. And even if we make mistakes, like, like the worst sorts of mistakes, you know what? We could turn it around like this. We could, we could, that, we could turn it around and say, I, I mislocated my eye and I made a lot, lot of bad decisions because of it. It was my ego got involved, my, my, my passions, my taivas and lust got involved, my, my survival mode worries kicked in, but I'm out of it. I'm opting out. My eye is your eye. I don't know wherever I'll try to do the best with the situation I'm in knowing that through me, I'm channeling, you know, it's not me as a separate identity. I'm channeling. We could shift it. The whole thing can change. And a Kaddish Baruch Hu can take our previous mistakes like he did with Haman, and turn them into great benefits, great gifts. That is a very good question. Was there a Venaha Pochu moment for Mordechai? It's a good question. We don't see it directly stated. It's not directly stated. Um, that's true from the one. That's true. That's good. You didn't need to have what? An apoko. He caused a lot of an apoko. Right, sack clothing to be paraded around. That was of an apoko. That's also representing Amisol that we go from being reviled and disgraced and diminished and devalued into being finally playing our proper role. That is also of an apoko. But the real Napoku, see, this is the main message, different from Pesach. In the Pesach story, the Napoku is, Paro's not God, I'm God, watch this, okay? But believe it or not, even though Hashem did that, it really, look at it, look, it didn't change. It didn't turn the world into the perfect place. It wasn't utopia, it wasn't, the, it wasn't, there was, right? Because people actually don't change unless it comes from their own self-discovery unless they own it. The story of Purim is that we realize who we are by our own working with ourselves, our own self-discovery, our own self-contemplation, and our own coming to terms with where our eye was located, where it is now located, what, how much we can shift it. It's all that internal work of changing that, of switching things around that really brings us all to discover, recognize, lock into the fact that we're all in a much greater story. And when we realize that it's extremely comforting, it takes a lot of the burden off us. 
just means that do your best in the situation you're in. Yeah. Um, could you uh, explain the last Is that upside down? Hapochbo vapochbo seems to mean turn it and turn it, like completely turning it, okay. like do a 360. Okay. So well, it could be maybe. It also is used sometimes hafuch, upside down. That's what we're talking about. That's what they're talking about. Mordechai, seen, even though it happened to him, he went from rags to riches, right? But that wasn't important to him. He was yes, his his it seems to be that he was like the anchor in the middle. Everything that physically happened to him in the story is irrelevant to him. It was relevant to the story. He was who he had to be. It's very important. Whenever you get into more Kabbalistic themes, you're always going to get the distinction between males and females, males being Chachma, females being beaten. In other words, it's always the female that does the work of building for oneself. That's called the female role of building a, a, a person, building an identity through hard work. I mean, that's what the female body does, builds a person through hard work. So uh, the male is always the potential, the possibility, but the females are always building it into something real, the bona, bina, bona. And the, what we actually build in the end, the only thing we build of is our self-concept. And when we build it right, this is the main thing, when the Chachma and the Bina work together, the offspring is called Das, but the Das, like a child, is way bigger than the, the sum total of the two parents. It's a world of its own, with its own choices, its own self-expression, its own dreams and goals, its own capacity. It's not just the parents, it's much bigger than the parents. So too, when we release something into the world through our actions, through our hard work, the aha moment, you know, the, the benefit is so much bigger than ourselves. So, so Omain, it's a good point. Omain means a nursing mother. And we view ourselves in a sense like the, the suckling child that's nursing. So yeah, in a way... Omen is the root of the word amuna, meaning we feel we're part of a much greater identity. You know, we feel like we are a separate self, but we're. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Correct. Correct. Always that. That that is right. Judy said a night, you know, beautiful idea that that's um, when we, in a way, you say, people talk about letting go. It's not really letting go. It's letting go of our mislocated I, but it is not letting go of our responsibility to channel a Kodesh Baruch Hu somehow, some way in our story to make a Kodesh Hashem to bring that, that is not letting go of that. It's gripping onto a moment. Right. It's letting go of a I that's stuck. It's unsticking the I. <laughs> All right. Let me look at the chat here. I'm going to turn off the recording, but I'm going to leave the meeting on for all you guys. So hold on.